Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume Podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest for today is Craig Cohan. Craig is a Canadian serial entrepreneur and former Coca-Cola and Cirque du Soleil executive, has lived on a barge on the Thames in London for 13 years. In November 2022, he repaid what he calls his debt to the earth, giving over $1 million of his pension to carbon removal projects. And in January 2023, he embarked on a 4,000 kilometre walk from London to Istanbul to campaign for carbon removal. Craig Cohan, I'm interviewing you here in your, um, how would you describe this, your trailer? My um, container? My sanctuary for the next five months Uh or as long as I stay here. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I, fi- I find it actually very peaceful in here, mm-hmm. if I really think about it. Mm. Very comfortable. It's lovely. Yeah. For, and, so, and so it's a, what, a shipping container? It's a reused, recycled shipping container that was done up to be a place that I can sleep in, host good friends that are walking with me to discuss climate crises and what we could do about it sure. as boomers sure. or young people. <laughs> um, and it's... Uh, totally off grid, so mm-hmm. water, solar power, um, a toilet that incinerates, a burning toilet, <laughs> a burning toilet that <laughs> incinerates your poop. Um, so I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah. Okay, and it's and it really is. There's some type of calmness to it. It kind of reminds me. It's a bit almost like a sauna, like the wood <laughs> around and that kind of peace. Yeah. That you get in that, yeah. you know, sitting quietly and, and slightly we're, we're, colder than the sauna. A little but. bit. We're sitting at a, at a table that's a Japanese table that's built into the floor. I love this. It's fantastic. And so it pushes down. Pushes down and all the beds kind of move up and move down. And, yeah. And a great big map on the wall. A map of the journey from London to Istanbul. And I am on kilometer 68 of 4,000. Day two. Day two, yeah. Of five months? 153 days. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, pretty cool. Okay. So, let's start now mm-hmm. and just give a very brief overview of what you're doing and why. Mm-hmm. And then let's go back. Sure. And kind of talk about how you got here. I like that. I okay. like that because I am walking it back. Exactly. <laughs> so, we will do the same. And it is a circle of life, too. Exactly. So, of exactly. What I'm doing now is I am uh, removing my lifetime carbon footprint. I've calculated it from 1963. I felt like I had uh, put a lot of CO2 into the environment. I didn't really understand what I was doing. Guilty not to blame, as I like to say. And realized it was 28 times more a typical UK citizen. And what caused you to even do that in the first place? What made you go? I've always been interested in trying to understand the other in general. 
And so the other on this was 20 years ago, trying to understand the activists, the anti-globalization movement, the people that said, um, we're putting too much stuff in the sea, we're making too much plastic, we should change the way we think about fossil fuels, the environmental coalitions. But I never really understood, even though I did clean energy stoves and um, I created, I was happy, you know, lucky to create a, a circularity company for textiles that circles um, T-shirts and stuff that for H&M, which is cool. I didn't understand CO2. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand how much CO2 we're putting up there and the harm it's doing to biodiversity and climate and floods and famine and climate justice and migration and fires. <laughs> so I started researching it during lockdown. And I started to understand the concept of loss and damages and what damages have I done as a white privileged male mm -hmm. approaching 60 who had been a businessman and flown 4 million miles around the world. And so I've read a lot of books about it. And then a BBC journal said, well, of course, you're going to reverse your lifetime carbon footprint. And I said, of course I am. And so that has taken me on a journey uh, to say, what damage have I done? Calculated the damage. And then I understood that. Of course, we have to reduce our carbon footprint, but I don't think we're going to get there in time. And so we have 2 trillion tons of carbon that are already up there for the last 200 years, and we have to remove that carbon. Mm -hmm. And there is nature-based and technology-based solutions that could do that. So I took my entire pension fund and put that towards nature-based and climate-based solutions that could do, uh, frontier-based solutions that could do that. I feel proud of that. So I've wiped the carbon debt off my mm -hmm. off my balance sheet and then I said well wouldn't it be fun to like partner with some great young, young activists and walk around the world and so I started that and I'm campaigning for carbon removal and we have a campaign that you know I'm walking from London to Istanbul at 60 and just trying to bring awareness to this issue it's a pretty interesting time for the planet there's lots going on and so this is the one thing I'm focused on Fantastic. Well, we'll come back to that at the end in terms of how anyone who's listening can also contribute sure. and what they can do and find sure. things out. But well, let's, let's, should we start at the beginning? <laughs> Would that be a good place to spot? Because I'm interested um, in your secret resume, in mm -hmm. the things that have influenced you, the people or the places or the events that have really influenced who you are um, and who you've become. Um, but it's always good to start at the beginning, as you were born in the U.S. Born in Chicago, 1963, side of Chicago, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing that influenced me, <laughs> I don't remember that much because I moved to Canada when I was five. But obviously, mother and your father, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's just no question mm -hmm. that the the braveness and courage of Buffalo to move from Chicago and move to Canada in 1968 was uh, great. And they were curious and adventurous and wanted to do something different and fun and exciting. And that was, that was the first thing that I would like to kind of get up and go and do it. And what made them move to Canada? My dad was a lawyer working for, with his, his father 
in Chicago and in a client that had the McDonald's franchise for Hawaii at the time. He had met Ray Kroc on the plane to Hawaii to negotiate the deal. And Ray Kroc said, you don't want to be a lawyer. Why don't you move to Canada and I'll give you the franchise rights for Canada. Wow. And dad talked to my mom that night and raised $60,000 from friends and family and we moved. <laughs> Do you remember moving? I remember driving up to Buffalo to see my my grandparents and then moving up to Canada. Yeah, I do. Yeah, very much. It's fun. Exciting. I remember all those years of, you know, my, my, my parents are still alive, thank God. I'm very, very lucky to be 60 and, and you know, sure. still have my, my parents alive, which is incredible, actually, in this generation to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, for sure, mom and dad to start. Big influencers. And I, in some of the reading I've been doing about you, you talked about um, what that meant for your dad and the way that, what you saw um, as the way that they had to operate, he had to operate. You've you referenced a few times the sort of games that you have to play in the corporate world. And I'm curious what your, you know, as a young boy, as a growing boy, what, mm. what your observation was of those you know, you talk about hosting people who you don't didn't necessarily, or they didn't necessarily want to host as part sure. of the. Well, there's, 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 the world is just full of wonderful human games that we create, uh -huh. right? So there's the corporate game and the politics of that. There's the social game and the politics of of making it in a social environment, and so we create all these games, and they're they're kind of sometimes they're fun to play actually, and sometimes they're not so fun to play, mm -hmm. but I saw them play it really well, uh -huh. incredibly well. And from all definitions of success in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up until now even, they're incredibly successful and, you know, brilliant and accomplished and, you know, dad... Dad and mom both, you know, created a, a wonderful life for themselves and, you know, a social life for themselves and the 0.1% club, I would say, um, in the world. And um, I understand the game and I know how to play the game. And sometimes I don't like to play the game. Were you part of the game as a child? Did you feel drawn into it? I never really felt drawn into that game because I always was a little bit blunter and less diplomatic mm -hmm. and didn't really have the boundary filters. Like if I didn't like someone and they didn't like me, they'd just tell me to my face and, you know, I don't want to play any games with mm -hmm. you. And I didn't play any games. And I started to play the game a little bit. And so I still play the game. You know, you play the game a little bit, but at least you're aware of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I played the cork. You're aware of the game. I'm aware of the Some game. Some people I'm not even sure are aware of yeah, the game. Yeah, you're aware of the game. And then you call people out on it. You call yourself out and you go, oh, my God, I'm mm -hmm. playing the game. Um, and it has a lot to do with ego. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, the, the big thing is it's all about ego. It's a very strong, powerful motivator of human action. And then that combined with 
the society and the definition of success around the society. So that, that combination is, wow, that's a double whammy. Well, I guess it's reinforcing, isn't it? Society is reinforcing you for what your ego is yeah. striving for. Yeah, so you're striving for... You're vindicating yourself sometimes. Sometimes you're looking for validation. A lot of times you look for validation. And and I understand, you know, why certain generations and certain people within generations, and as you're moving up different ladders of whatever it is, there's the validation. How that validation comes is, is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started looking inside to that validation versus outside. Um, when you, I'm curious as that, you know, that period where, um, you know, you make those first decisions about what you're going to do for a career. You know, you choose what to study at university. Yeah. You, you know, you choose your first jobs. But, you know, what, how did you decide? What made you do what you did for studies? You know, did didn't think about studies at all. Just wanted to have a good time, learn as much as possible, do some great things at university. So I didn't think about, oh, I got to be this person. Oh, so it wasn't that. about the job at the end of it. No, it was about. It's never really been about the job okay, for me. I don't. I don't. I, I think that word is so narrow. Mm. It just it's, we just seem to job career. How about just life? Mm-hmm. Like just human life like what you do in your life right not your job or career and you divide it into job and friends and family and father and son and you know all those things it's crazy to divide it so it wasn't school at all i had a great time in, yeah. in school and, and loved the arts and loved sports and loved creating new things but it wasn't to get a job i wanted to be a f-16 pilot is that like a fighter pilot? Yeah, a fighter pilot, because I love planes, and so I got my pilot's license when I was 21 mm-hmm. in Toronto, and I asked my dad, hey, Dad, I think I want to be a F-16 pilot. He goes, no, don't, just don't do that. It's too, I just don't want to, basically, I don't want to lose you. Yeah. And so I, I got that, and um, so I, so I was lucky, and I just keep on looking for adventure. Mm. And it's consistent now. Even I'm looking for <laughs> it's adventure. Yeah, it's not like I'm running away from anything. I, actually, I don't think I'm running away from anything. I'm I'm looking to continue to learn um, my internal world, and mm. I learn it uh, by by reflecting on the external world I'm at to understand the internal world. So that started with Operation Raleigh in 1985. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I took a I was one of the first Canadian ventures on uh, Colonel Blackford Snell's missions, and this what one made was. You, how did you even get into that? What made you do it? Oh my God! I saw it? an ad in the Toronto Star, <laughs> and uh, they said Canadians, would you like to go on an amazing adventure for si- Prince Charles's science? Sorry, King King Charles's yeah. science and service. And I, I talked to my parents. They said, "Oh, that'll be fun. Why don't you try for it?" And so I tried for it, and. Um, back in those days, there was hard military training that you tried for and psychological things you put them through. And I, I, I went to Chile and uh, spent months on a horseback doing the road survey for the extension of the Pan American Highway. Mm-hmm. And that was my first kind of, okay, I'm out of Canada, I'm out of the U.S., mm. the big world. Pinochet was in power back then. 
I started to open up, and that was a fascinating time. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Doing that experience. So it was a combination of adventure and impact and getting out of my comfort zone, for sure, physically, emotionally, psychologically, um, being with people that I had not been with before. Yeah. So a guy named Joe Lane, who was my partner, who, who killed a cop in Canada and was on this, and we were both mentoring each other about wow. on different sides of the track because he had just had a bad bad situation mm-hmm. happen, and he didn't, it wasn't first-degree murder, second-degree murder, it was manslaughter. Mm-hmm. But he was a good friend, so that started me on a bit of a journey. Sounds like that, that adventure side of pushing yourself really came to the fore there. It did, yeah, it did. Um, and you get mental toughness mm-hmm. on that. And so that was the start of me subconsciously unlearning. Unlearning what? Unlearning everything that comes before. So just, I like being in the quadrant, which is, I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's a very fascinating place to be in. Mm-hmm. And you have to be really open to it. Mm. Yeah, I just don't know what I don't know. And there's yeah. so much to know, and there's so much I don't know. Yeah. And then there's so much I don't even know exists. Do you think that comes with age, that recognition? That I'm not sure. I think sort of don't know what you don't... Like a, an, an acknowledgement that there's a lot that you don't know. If you're open to understanding that there's a lot that you don't know, then it comes with age. Mm. If you're not open to it, then you think you're an expert. And I don't really, like there's people that are great at certain things, but Mm -hmm. the concept of an expert, you could always, if you're a great electrician, you could always learn from another great electrician. Mm -hmm. Or you might learn from a a plumber that understands electricians. You know, where we have an electrician working today, that's an amazing electrician. I spent so much time with him, I just couldn't believe his skill. But I don't understand electrics, as an example. Nor do I understand about the woodwork here, nor do I understand about... Audio, you know, there's just there's so much to learn. Yes, and so many and, places. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Different things. But there's so much to unlearn too, because then you get stuck. Uh-huh. So if you don't take the time to actually force yourself to throw out your old attitudes and beliefs about how the world works and what's right and what's wrong and what success is and what's failures, and then you'll then you'll you'll stay stuck. Mm. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, me too. And I see people being really afraid of that. Because I think because they don't know, if I'm not that, then who am I? And that's yeah, really frightening yeah, for people. Yeah. Well, this, the, the, the whole thing about labeling. Mm-hmm. Who are you? You're, you're just you. You're just you. Yeah. You're just you. You're not like, <laughs> you're not you who works for X. And you're not you who used to work for Coca-Cola. And you're not you who, you know, is a... So you're a psychotherapist or psych- Psych- psychologist. You're a psychologist. Yeah. Like, forget about it. You know, you're just you. Yeah. You just happen to be doing this stuff now, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And you're not a former. I don't know what you did before, but you're. You yeah. know. You know. So everyone describes themselves as, like, what do you do? Well, I'm. I'm I think I'm a good dad. I like being a dad. Yeah. I really like being a dad. That to me, I like that label. Yeah. Yeah. What is it you like about it? I like I like that uh, like I help bring up 
Your face lights out when to, you talk about yeah. it, even in the dark. Yeah. I like that I you know, brought up these two wonderful kids with my ex-wife. We got divorced, but we did, I think, a really great job. And that I keep I'm learning from them every day. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That really feels special. Yeah. I also like that I'm a challenging but son that's there. Mm-hmm. I'm not physically there, but I'm, I'm there. So those labels I like. Yeah. All the other ones, ah, whatever. They're temporary. Yeah, they're totally temporary. Because well, you know we're here, we're we're not here that long, so of course <laughs> no, everything is temporary. temporary yeah. Everything's temporary. That is true. But it's good to say on my on my tombstone. I'm, I'd like it to say, you know, good dad, not a bad citizen, had some fun, tried to do some things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Tried to do that would be such yeah. a funny ghost. Yeah. I want to try to do something. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. <laughs> try to do things. But I do. The, I think the word fun is an interesting. I never want to take myself too seriously, uh-huh. especially now, because Does that changed. Yeah, yeah, of course, and I think that changes. Like in in your twenties and thirties, you're yeah. I'm gonna run the Coca Cola company, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna, you know, make a million dollars, or whatever, whatever you know. It does, it does yeah. and you could stay in that space, or you could kind of continue to learn and grow and take risks and change and and make tons of mistakes in the process. It's mm-hmm. just about when you jump off the, the cliff, I believe the parachute will open and it'll cushion your fall. And you just sometimes you break a leg, for sure. Like I've broken more legs than I have. <laughs> yeah. Good job that I yeah. bend. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Whether it's, yeah, you know, whether it's relationships or, or marriages or businesses or... Mm. You know, I, I, or making bad decisions and investments, mm-hmm. whatever. But at least you know you try. So you worked. You were at Coca Cola. You mentioned there. What, how long was that? Fourteen years. Fourteen years. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. What What made you join, and what made you leave? Um, very simple. What made me join is I came out of the jungle for Operation Raleigh. I saw a Coca Cola sign. I said I need to get a job. I think my dad would be proud of 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 me. My mom would be proud of me. Um, Dad had some leverage with Coca-Cola because he worked at McDonald's. He helped get me, you know, in to actually have an interview. Um, and so I worked there, and it was really fun. It was really fun. It was a great job for 15, 14 years until it wasn't. And why it was so great is that if you take yourself back to 1985 to 2000, not a bad time, actually. 90s were great. You know, the downfall of the Soviet Union, people coming together, economy was booming right after, in the UK right after the, I think the 90s were okay in the UK, weren't they? Early 90s? No, no, they no weren't, they early were 90s good? were terrible. Okay, but, but late 90s, <laughs> but late 90s were good. And it was just uh, a great company before the issues around plastics, before the issues around um, sugar, before the issues around water that none of us had thought about back then in the company. And if so, we did, but we didn't really. We were just there, you know, providing a moment of pleasure for a billion people a day. Mm. That was it. That was it. It was fun. And And what stopped the the, fun? Well, what stopped the fun for me was I had worked in the Soviet Union. I had saw capitalism and consumers and consumption. I thought there was too much choice. I thought we had too much choice. And I was, in 2000, I was in a presentation um, 
presenting something about Fanta and increasing it a half share point in Belgium during a business plan, a, a little angel <laughs> on my shoulder basically said, what are you doing? What, Craig, what are you doing? This boring. This boring. This boring. And it, <laughs> it became boring to me. It was like, I'm not going to. And even though the world of Coca-Cola is an amazing, huge world, biggest brand in the world, you know, yada, 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 yada. Don Keogh, my mentor, <clears throat> uh, who was the CEO of the company at the time, said, Craig, you know, if you're thinking about leaving, tear off your business card and tear off the Coca-Cola company uh -huh. from your business card and just see your name there, Craig Cohan. And if you're comfortable with that, and you should be, and do what you need to do. And that was my first kind of unidentification, non-identification moment, mm. which is like, it's okay, just being Craig. It's okay. And you've said previously your dad thought you were mad. I, th I, think, uh, I think a lot of people thought that, that there was a, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you leave the company? Why would you leave the corporate world? You're kind of riding high. You were a global leader of tomorrow at the World Economic Forum. That's what got you there. It got you into the club. How are you going to stay in the club? I said, well, maybe there's other clubs out there. Mm. There's lots of clubs to join. <laughs> there's lots of clubs to join. I could join the Rotary Club. I could join the, you know, we're here with a bunch of truck drivers. They probably have a very cool club. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, they do. John Pritmore, who drives his truck, is an amazing guy. We are just, for context, not only are we in a container, we're in a container at a service station. <laughs> yeah, with a lot, with lots in of, southern England, with lots of trucks around, lots of trucks around, lots of trucks around. So, how did that feel? Was it exciting? Was it terrifying? Was it was it, terrifying. Yeah, yeah. But I had a, I had a thought back in two thousand, which was, I was worried about consumerism and capitalism, and I thought that the externalities of environment and social had to be built in to the business, and I thought that the concept of for profit and not for profit was false. And the concept of greed and guilt was driving that. So make all your money and then start a foundation with your name. Mm -hmm. And they didn't believe in that. And I still don't believe in that. And I think that we have to build the cost of carbon into our lifestyle. We have to build the cost of um, equity and equality for people into our lifestyle. I believe in universal basic income as a concept. So don't do it. After, do it, do it within. during. Yeah, do it during. And mm. so it's an evolution of the system. And uh, I was really excited in 2000, but I was too far in front of the parade that no one knew I was in it back then, mm -hmm. which was fine. So I, I failed at that. Um, lost, my, lost my marriage in the process because I was, I was getting, I was, that is the time in my life that I was taking myself too seriously. Okay. 2000 and 2007, for sure. And young kids and really passionate about this space. And I couldn't make it work. I couldn't make it money work. Lost our house. We had to sell our, our apartment. Um, lost our marriage for a whole bunch of reasons. Because I, I started then, because I couldn't make it work, I felt I, I was a failure, obviously. Of course, because I wasn't successful in that. And that started the journey. Another journey, probably. That sounds like a very significant thing to... Kickstart another yeah. part of the journey. Oh yeah, that was a multi-series of events, that not was just painful. one. Oh, that was painful. 
And so, you know, people rallied around me. My mom and dad were amazing, and my brother, you know, during the divorce. Um, and I had a great time. I, so I basically went from, I went from a uh, silently rebelling against the system on the inside of Coca-Cola and the social system, silent rebellion, but actually playing it. And that's not, that's not bullshit myself. I, I, I played the game for sure. To uh, seven years of hedonism. If we think about Greek philosophy, the hedonism moment was, you know, I was lucky enough to own part owner of Cirque du Soleil in Russia. I got divorced. I had been flying back and forth to Russia. I had a crazy, wonderful girlfriend Totally hedonistic time for me. And then um, to the point where I lost my center, for sure. For sure. And so I've been working on reducing my hedonism and moving to stoicism. Okay. But having a little bit of hedonism. Mm -hmm. Because like, I don't want to throw it, I don't want to throw it all. Because it's kind of fun. <laughs> really boring. It's kind of fun, right? Like I'm doing a serious carbon removal campaign, but this is, turns into a speakeasy, and there's a bunch of bottles of Johnny Walker. I've seen the Johnny Walker, and I don't really drink that much. But it's kind of you know, let's let's not take ourselves too seriously. So I think it's this. I'm not dogmatic or polemical as much as I could have been. I don't think about right and left. You know, when I when I launched this campaign yesterday, and we walked down the mall to to um, Buckingham Palace with about 40 or 50 people. I made, I made sure I walked right in the middle of the street. Mm -hmm. So all, And I started walking in the middle of the street, and then all 50 of us walked in the middle of the street, and I think it's good to, to be in the center. Mm -hmm. Not the center of tension, the center of a conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in right, I don't believe in left, mm. I don't believe in those, those models. I just don't. So I'm interested in what, um, what made you realize that the hedonistic times were not because needed to uh, because uh, i broke up with my ex-girlfriend and she said craig you need to go you need to take care of yourself and she's probably right and then i i went to this hoffman process and the hoffman process is what are the negative love patterns that your parents put on you between zero and 12 and that don't serve you anymore in your life and so it might have been definition of success it might have been thinking about women differently or others might have been thinking about um, excuse me one second. Do you mind if I get that? No, let's I'm sorry. It. Just, so one of the things I think is really important, just because um, that was a interesting, I mm. had, a, had a call come in from a friend of mine who has been a friend for 40 years. From Operation Rally, from which Oper we were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, from Operation Rally. And I, took I don't the, believe in coincidences. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> and one of the things my parents told me and, and ingrained in me is this concept of relationship building versus transactional connections. And so I've always, I really think that's super important that you build relationships, you hold those relationships if you want to for years and years and years and years, and you it's not transactional. Uh -huh. It's not like you give me this, I give you that. It's not like a, and it's a very different way of living. It's the life. opposite of the game. It is the opposite of the game, yeah. And so I would say that my parents, their best friends are deep relationships. Some of the, the game friends are no longer around because mm -hmm. it's transactional. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you, you, you invite me your thing, I'll invite you to my thing. It's like, nope, not going to do that. So just like people, you just met a couple people, right? That yes, in, in the exactly. container, right? Yes. Who are, that's not transactional relationships. No. And those are new ones. These are new friends. No. As an example. And that's an old friend from 40 years ago. So I believe in like deep relationships that where you have real conversations about the world and your inner world. Your inner world. Your inner world, not uh -huh. just your outer world. Your inner world, where you have, like, how are you? How are you feeling? What's going on with you? Yeah. And, and I think for men in particular, those conversations happen less. They're they, harder yep. for men to have. Would, that, would you I agree with that? I have never found that. No. In my life, because I always have them with my buddies. Mm. And so my buddies are like that. And I'm attractive. I find it very attractive in an emotional and intellectual sense to have those discussions with my male friends. Mm -hmm. My female friends too, but mm. with my male friends. And so, of course, I could be as alpha as alpha gets. Mm -hmm. But I I think I'm an alpha with a beta rising. <laughs> And I think a lot of guys. This is your style sign. <laughs> a lot of guys don't have beta. A lot of guys have have dormant beta yeah. risings, and they and just if you start asking the questions, then and if you're vulnerable yourself, mm -hmm. then then you hear the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with my kids, I uh, in Sweden we had a home in Sweden for for twenty years, and uh, when they got to an age where they were curious about everything. In a different way. I mean, like more adult curious versus young curious. We had this chair of truth that we set up. And whoever sat in the chair, they had to tell the truth if anyone asked them a question. Wow. That so was, could you ask someone to sit in it? Yeah. Like yeah. they would say, Dad, go and sit in the yeah, chair totally, of truth. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we would do it every every summer, the chair of truth. And so this concept of being vulnerable. Mm. And not being perfect and not being, you know, and not being new. It's not about vulnerability. No, it's not about weakness. It's, those are different things. Being vulnerable is just like, hey, how you doing? And you tell the truth about how you're doing, how you're feeling, how you connect your head and your heart. Well, even if it is about weakness, so what? So what? Well, well see, I don't see. I don't, that's another thing. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with success and failure as a construct. I think that's totally made up by our society really made up mm -hmm. um, and I could give lots of examples and I think that you know but I also don't believe in the mental framework of weakness and strength I think that's also made up so much a social construct isn't it that's a complete social construct yeah My dad, you're weak if you do X you're strong if you yeah. do Y yeah I think the thing that's really brought home social constructs for me is um, Michaela and, uh, as you know, my sister and I, yeah. our dad has uh, advanced Alzheimer's or dementia. And one thing I've noticed is that as that has progressed, the sort of societal expectations get washed away. And so what you see is much more of a pure essence of someone. So they stop doing what society expects them to do and they just do 
what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear people talk about it, it's like reverting back to childhood, but, mm. you know, children do that, right? Sure. They haven't learned the social constructs. Um, but we live most of our lives with this behind them and shackled by them. Shackled. Yeah. Totally, totally shackled. So yeah. as soon as you start getting... So, you know, great med- meditation is all about emptying your brain of everything. <laughs> and so I'm starting to hear silence. And that's a pretty amazing place to be, mm. to hear silence. Yeah, and you played as the music that you'd got someone to to make for this the journey ca- the, that you're yeah, on. Yeah, the sound yeah. of carbon removal. Yeah. Right, right. Amazing. Yeah, that was fun. Just yeah. different ways to explain something that you can't hear, you can't touch, you can't see. You know, there's, there is two trillion tons of carbon in the atmosphere that's two trillion baby elephants up in the sky wow Wow. (laughs) it's crazy to think about it so you think that that's kind of covering the planet in a blanket of warmth um we're kind of frying ourselves Uh, who anyone that doesn't believe that i'm willing to have that debate with you so bringing it back to to the present day or yeah. to your lockdown research that you started doing what caused that why what obviously you had time during lockdown i'm guessing but why why climate why is that something that you you've focused on everyone has so i i i, I i'm not going to preach to anybody i mean every single human has their issues whether it's health issues or relationship issues or job issues or inflation or war and famine. And I mean, there's everyone. And so the climate is an existential, existential, existential threat. Mm-hmm. And we as humans are really good at normalizing things. We normalize our situation as a, as a species. And I don't want us to normalize us destroying our planet because we could do that very easily and I think we kind of are oh yeah it's just a little hotter or it's okay the forest will grow back that burnt down or the floods are good or we'll move our house or climate has always changed or climate has always changed yeah of course and those are deniers but I'm not even talking about the deniers I'm saying the vast majority of people that just kind of normalize we'll we'll, we'll get through this you know we'll, we'll kind of get through it and then and then you live in a place that is, you, you think that this is normal. All of it's normal. And you look around, it's like, well, it's not normal, actually. There are no birds anymore. And there's no fish. And there's too much plastic in the ocean. And, and we are frying ourselves. And so that's why I'm, I chose to work on this and try to communicate in a different way. Because you can't see CO2 or taste it or touch it. Or hard, it's hard to get your head around it. So your mission is to... Raise awareness. My mission is to... No, that's not my mission. My mission is to meet as many people along the way, have a great conversation with them, and maybe and learn a bunch about mm-hmm. where people are at. And at the other end, I, I might come out with something else. I might come out with, like, everyone cares about this thing, and there's a different way to approach it. Mm-hmm. I would like to remove carbon along the way, but it's not really my mission. My mission is to engage mm-hmm. in a way that's non, non, 
preachy and non-judgmental and non-threatening where I keep on learning. I learned a lot today just walking south of London and stopping 14 people along the way and all the issues they have. It's so interesting, isn't it? This non-preachy, non-judgmental. And, you know, I do a lot of work in diversity and inclusion. And, and my fear with that is that there's too much aggression, actually, and anger. And it, it's very difficult to have. Yeah. I understand why there's yeah. aggression and anger because of what we've created. Definitely. And it, and it has left people behind. Mm-hmm. No question. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I think people who've got privilege are struggling to engage in the conversation. But you have to engage. You do. You have well, to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> you have to listen. Listen. Yeah. You have to you absolutely have to listen. And listening is really tough. So I think that we're moving from activism of shame on the climate. There's a lot of shame that went on oh. from young activists to activism of telling us what to do, which I get. You know, let's have you know people younger than us. You know, you should be doing this because you're screwing up the planet. To mm-hmm. activists and engagement of conversations about reaching across the aisle, reaching across the other point of view, understanding what they're dealing with, like just engaging through discussion not engaging through preaching. Yeah, dialogue. Yeah, dialogue. Yeah, we've lost that. We've yeah. lost the art of dialogue because we hide behind, you know, digital stuff. Yeah. So we've lost the art of conversation. Yeah. We've lost the art of listening. Well, we haven't, obviously, but we're, we're in danger of losing that. So I've got a couple of questions for okay. you. Final few questions. Thanks. One is um, if people want to get involved, to get engaged, what should they do? Um, the traditional answer is, hey, follow us on social media, <laughs> 2023, walk it back on Instagram and walkitback.org on, on, um, on the web. That's one thing, mm-hmm. which is the traditional thing. The second thing is have a discussion with yourself about what you want to do first. Like, do you really want to change? Do you really want to make a difference? Are you ready for it because it's gonna it's gonna take you if you want to go there it's gonna if you if you commit it's gonna take your money and your time and your energy but as you're doing it you're gonna feel great okay question two if you were to uh, speak to a younger version of yourself you can choose what age you would speak to what would you say to them i would say um craig it's okay and life's so simple it's okay what you do it's okay Third final question. Okay. As you have a sales background. Oh, yeah. That's right. What would your strap line for your secret resume be? Oh, my God. That's why That's why I'm talking to you. I have no idea. Strap line? I, I, I do like that, that thing on the tombstone. What, what, did yeah. I, what did we say? What did you say? What did said? I say? You did a few things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I had some fun. A good dad. Good dad. Good son. Had some fun, did a few things. I love that. Yeah, that would be my strapline. That is fantastic strapline. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to free you to go and eat after thank you. your long walk today. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. So despite uh, sitting in a cold trailer, uh, doing the podcast by Torchlight, I had a really great time interviewing Craig. He's a very fascinating man and really enjoyed the conversation about 
ego, about learning and unlearning, um, his views on friendship, vulnerability, activism, um, corporate games. It's a really fascinating conversation and um, I hope you enjoyed it too. If you did, tell your friends. If you want to hear more, please subscribe.